Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. The internet's just not the greatest deal out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's uh, right. We were going to give you some grief about not being able to figure out the Zoom technology because Alan Savory did it. So we got him and he's, uh, he's, he's like 85. So. Yeah. Well, Alan, Alan Savory spends a lot more time on, uh, on screens than I do. That's true. That may be true. Well, I appreciate you coming on. We've had just so many people just wanting us to get you on the show. We've heard so many great things about you. And just because you can't see it, I usually do a custom background for every guest and I got to picture some of your cattle and I actually made sure they were a picture of your cattle. So that's my okay. screen. So roaming on your little, your, your beautiful little pasture land there. So, um, Joel, uh, for the people that have not heard of you and, and some of our listeners may not have, can you just give us a quick, quick background on, on who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm on a farm in, uh, Virginia, Shenandoah Valley. I grew up here, so I'm second generation on this location. And, um, our son now runs day-to-day operations, but, uh, we do pasture-based livestock. Uh, we have not um, bought a bag of chemical fertilizer or anything in 60 years. We've been here now 60 years, almost 60 years. And, um, and you know, uh, dad and mom started here with a little worn out farm. They both worked in town and that paid for the place. So when Teresa and I got married, uh, we wanted to come back to the farm. It was not a going concern, but at least the land was paid for. So we got a running start and are glad to stand on shoulders of, of uh, people that went ahead of us. That, that live below their means instead of above their means and um, and built the you know the business here we do uh, beef pork uh, laying chickens meat chickens turkeys rabbits ducks sheep um, and we have a sawmill we mill lumber as well so we we uh, have a pretty diversified uh, operation I mean, that to me is a little, the, the, the first thing you said is you guys have been doing it for 60 years this way. You haven't had fertilizer on that land for 60 years. And so that, you know, we're seeing, you know, still in my view, it, it needs to, to grow more, but we are seeing a greater and greater interest in re- regenerative or holistic or, you know, well-pastured animals, you know, which is, which a lot of consumers are interested in. And therefore I think more and more ranchers are finding it. But 60 years ago, it seems like you guys were way ahead of the time. What inspired uh, your parents to to want to do it that way when when you know sure that's when these things were being invented and, and becoming the 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 you know the way to be more efficient. So what was what was yeah. what what happened then? Well, yeah, well, we always said my dad was uh, was organic before Rachel Carson wrote Silent Spring, 
But uh, actually, it goes on back yet another generation to his dad, my grandfather in Indiana, who in 19, what would have been 49, was a charter subscriber to Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming magazine. A lot of people don't realize that right there post-World War II, there was quite a watershed uh, moment in the country as as we we collectively kind of decided whether to go the kind of chemical route or the you know the biological route and um and there were actually some very powerful people i mean lewis bromfield ed faulkner um rodale in britain there was lady eve balfour sir albert howard i mean these were these were world named world renowned people who were taking a a biological uh, uh, you know that farming should be primarily biological and um and of course they they couldn't stand they didn't win <laughs> put it that way they didn't win against the you know the uh the assault of the uh, chemical approach which you know was extremely cheap at that time because of the stockpile of of uh nitrogen potassium and phosphorus from the war effort both world war 1 world war 2 ammunition is made out of um, out of synthetic npk and so it was cheap it was available um you know there were there were sales teams laboratories miners you know distribution networks and the biological approach at that time required compost and uh, and carbon management in a day before efficient front end loaders and chainsaws and wood chippers and all the things necessary to make a an efficient carbon economy work and so i don't begrudge farmers at that time for for taking that that chemical bag because they were tired of shoveling shoveling and they didn't have good means of 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 handling carbon otherwise and so they took that bag so it took you know it took uh 15 years for front end loaders, chainsaws, chippers, uh black plastic pipe to be able to deliver water cheaply, uh pumping efficiency, I mean all of these uh, uh things that came, you know, in the late 50s early 60s uh, to actually metabolize the um you know the infrastructure required for a competitive um a competitive biological approach which centers around, you know, uh, uh carbon regeneration. So here, so here we are, and and now, of course, uh, the chemical approach has kind of run its course and is, has, um, you know, morphed into genetically modified organisms and um, you know, glyphosate and all sorts of, you know, now it's heading into nanotechnology, so we can have nanoparticles running through our veins and and arteries. That's a good thing, and um, and so you know, here we are, and and on the other side, we're seeing incredible verification by the microbiome project, a, a renewed increase in the soil food web. We now know that um, you know, there, are, there are 7 billion um, microbes in a double handful of healthy soil, only 10% of which have been named. We still have 90% of the soil community is still unnamed, so we actually have a higher percentage of named stars in the cosmos than we do, um, you know, uh, uh, communities of beings in the soil. But anyway, so you know, so here we are. This this biological chemical friction 
and uh, my grandfather was a was an early adherent to the biological approach, and you know had compost piles, all sorts of cool stuff in his uh, very very large garden in Indiana. He never farmed, but he had a quarter acre garden, which is a pretty big garden, and actually sold produce you know there locally through the through the fifties. Joel, I want to just going to get right into some things because, you know, there is, as you are probably well aware of, there is a huge push to sort of do away with animal agriculture and, um, you know, and much of it is is not squarely pointed in what you're doing, but we we have this uh, sort of, uh, some people call it factory farming, advocates will say it's intensive management, you know, uh, a different style mm-hmm. where, you know, we're, we're feeding these animals, you know, grains, albeit most of their life is spent on pasture, but at the same point, they are, they are in feedlots, you know, for the last few, few months of their life that has some inherent problems, antibiotic resistance from, from, you know, heavy antibiotic use potentially, you know, we have to spray pesticides on those crops, you know, we have to gen- gen- genetically modify them so they're resistant to, 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 to pests potentially, or, or they can handle the pesticides better depending on how they modify them. What do you say about, um, you know, you know, and, and people will say, well, what you're doing is nice, it's cool, it's great for, the, it's good for the animals, it's good for the environment, but that's not scalable. I mean, we can't do it. We can't feed people. Is that just a pipe dream to think that we could, we could, we could replicate what you're doing on on a massive scale? And how, and if 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 so, how would that how would that need to happen? And what what sort of impediments are there for the average rancher that may be listening? Because we have quite a few ranchers to listen to this show. That maybe you know in in the normal cow calf operation, you know, off to the feedlot, so on and so forth. What what do you say to that sort of stuff? Sure. Well, uh, there's there's nothing that we do that's more that's more scalable than our controlled grazing management for the herbivores. Uh, you know, you could argue whether the what we do with pastured poultry is as scalable. I would argue it is absolutely scalable, except it just takes more, more people farming. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't take anybody working in pharmaceutical labs. So, you know, we take, it just, it, it just switches the labor from, from the lab to the farm, you know, which is probably not a bad trade. Uh, uh, so, so, but if you go to the herbivores, uh, that's where, that's where this system of, you know, what we call mob stocking, herbivorous solar conversion, lignified carbon sequestration, fertilization uh, really shines. So, so here's the deal. Um, uh, the most efficacious converter of solar energy into biomass is not trees and it's not shrubs. It's actually grass. Grass, for a lot of reasons, I won't bore you with all the reasons from, you know, straight pipelines to uh, fast metabolic capacity and all this. The point is that prairies have always built soil faster and when i say prairies i'm using it very generally grasslands if you will have built soil faster than forests and faster than uh bushes and so the deep soils on the planet from america's great you know western areas to the pampas of argentina the plains of africa the steppes of mongolia you know these these all developed with herbivores um, and, and grasses over time. The reason that that is such a symbiotic uh, relationship is because because of its very rapid um, growth cycle, metabolic capacity, grasses mature quickly. They mature way quicker than a tree, way quicker than a bush. And when they mature, 
they turn brown and they quit they quit photosynthesizing and so the herbivore is essentially a pruner uh, so so i've quit using the word grazing because grazing now has a you know negative connotation uh you know you're that's destroying the planet so so i use the word pruning now which has a very positive connotation and and that is what the herbivores are supposed to do they come and they prune that senescent uh that senescent grass and restart the rapid vegetative growth cycle um and just like an orchardist would prune an apple tree a, a viticulturalist would prune a vineyard they prune it not to kill things but to actually stimulate uh fresh additional production and so that's the role of the herbivore and the herbivore does it three ways it the herbivores are moving they don't stay in the same place they're mobbed up for predator protection and they're mowing you could say pruning but it's nice to have three three words that start with them so they're moving mobbing and mowing and when that occurs we have tremendous synergy within the ecosystem of converting solar energy into biomass uh, carbon sequestration you know all these things but when we violate any one of those three moving mobbing mowing when we violate them then we don't have synergy we actually have uh, degeneration so honoring them regeneration dishonoring them degeneration and the problem is that 90% maybe more 95 96% of all domestic herbivores on the planet do not mimic the moving mobbing mowing of historical herbivores that we see in nature they they stay on the same field they don't move every day they're they're not mobbed up they're spread out you know one here one there one over there and they're not even mowing they're uh, in feedlots they're eating grain they're you know they're not they're not doing the mowing and so the so what's happened is because that's the dominant theme in the world when scientists study domestic livestock production specifically herbivores they're studying a system that doesn't honor moving mobbing and mowing and therefore does not demonstrate the kind of ecological uh, uh, regeneration that historically occurred with the megafauna on prairies around the planet it would be a, it would be similar to let's say i lived on pluto and and pluto said looking down at earth they said you know that's an interesting planet looking down there uh let's go down and 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 see how they teach their kids you know and so uh two of us volunteer we get in our flying saucer we come down to the earth and we land in the worst school district with the worst superintendent in the yard of the worst school with the worst principal and go visit the worst classroom with the worst teacher with the worst kids who have the worst parents we spend our two days observing all this collecting our data we fly back to pluto they say well what'd you find and we would say well goodness they'd be a lot better down there if they didn't even have a school system <laughs> and and this is not an indictment about schools i'm just trying to give a a, a, a metaphor 
mm-hmm. uh, or analogy of of the kind of dysfunctional data that the scientific community is collecting when we have such a dysfunctional herbivorous production system. And so this leads to crazy conclusions like, you know, cows are destroying the planet. So what ha- I'll just give you one example of the difference. If we're moving, mobbing, mowing, and we have really a healthy, uh, healthy uh, pasture coming on, uh, healthy perennials, prairie, it actually grows a bacteria called methanotrophic bacteria. Methanotrophic bacteria, if if they're um, if they're at 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 naturally normal levels, can reach out and grab the um, the equivalent methane of a thousand cows and put it into the soil. But methanotrophic bacteria does not grow under corn. It does not grow under uh, annuals. It does not grow under tillage. It does not grow under feedlots, concrete, or overgrazed pastures, which are, you know, which represent 90% of, of America's uh, uh, pastures. So, um, so we, you know, every single negative that the scientific community has has found to um, disparage domestic herbivores. Nature has an answer for it. It always has. I mean, the fact that we that we had way more pounds of animals 500 years ago here than we do today should give us all pause to realize it's it's not the animal. It's the management of the animal that's the problem. And so, you know, that's that's a that's a real quick short answer. I hope to help folks wrap their heads around the, the reality of the science, the data points, and what's driving the, anti, the anti-animal movement. Yeah, and Joe, so, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff in there, and I think it's very interesting about the methanotropic uh, organisms on grass that can suck, the, suck that methane out of the air. Um, you know, we, you know, we've had guys like uh, Frank Mitlauner on, who's a pretty good guy with greenhouse gas. I'm, I, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. You, you might be, but, you know, one of the things we learn is, you know, you know, the U.S. is obviously very different from other places in the world. You know, largest herd in the world is what Brazil, 20, 220 million, and followed by the Indian herd with about 200 million. And then you've got the Chinese herd and then the U.S. herd, then the Ethiopian herd. And, you know, you, you look at places like India where half the cattle are infected with parasites or horribly managed, I would assume. Same thing with mm-hmm. the African herd, I would imagine. And it takes them yeah. 15, 20 years to bring a cow to a point where you can actually, you know, you know, where it's worth eating them, I guess. And so we've got such <laughs> tremendous inefficiencies worldwide. But I'm just wondering about the the, the different uh, topographies, the 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 types of land that's available that, that, you know, can we do, can we replicate what you're doing worldwide? But I guess, you know, in the United States, just in particular, um, there are certain, I mean, obviously there's a lot of grain subsidies. There's, there's in financial incentives to do what we're doing continually. Uh, you know, our whole system is, is set up to take cows from Montana to Nebraska to feed them on grain. You know, we've got this whole infrastructure built in there. But I mean, to do what you would like to see happen, or, you know, I mean, assumingly, if we could do this on a large scale, what would have to happen, you know, and like, as a consumer, I'm not a rancher, I don't know the ins and outs of it. I've, I've learned a lot as I've talked to people, but it's just kind of a regular Joe when it comes to what I can do to impact, 
you know, how we could make this happen if we were to say, okay, it's, it's, you know, we've heard this before, it's not the cow, it's the how. And if we want to fix the how, and we want to say, what, would, what does it take to make, you know, 750,000 Joel Salatins, you know, because we have 750,000 cattle ranches in the U.S., how do we make that happen? So what, 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 are, the, what are the impediments that you think are, are overcomable? Are there, are there things that we just can't overcome? Yeah, sure, sure. Well, um, I was writing questions. You got several questions in there, so let me let, let me let me take it kind of in, in two. Uh, one is, you know, how do we replicate this worldwide? Well, fortunately, for the first time in human civilization, we have extremely affordable control mechanisms so that we can move this stock around. I mean, you're familiar with ancient uh, shepherding techniques. Um, that's fine, especially on a, on a smaller scale. But, uh, but, you know, we have electric fence now where in most of the world where, you know, cattle are, are, are grazed, um, electric fence allows us to essentially put a, um, uh, thank you, uh, put a, um, you know, a, a steering wheel uh, brake and an accelerator on that four-legged pruning uh, sauerkraut vat and steer them around the landscape with the same precision of a zero-turn mower. And that's never been possible in human history. It's extremely inexpensive. It's extremely mobile and portable. And so we move the herd every day. And, yes, we have, you know, um, we have herds of, of 300, 400, 500. The biggest herd we've done in one group is 720. That's a pretty big herd of cows. Uh, but there are certainly people that are running 2,000, 3,000 head around the world. And um, and doing it either with with uh, shepherds uh, and sometimes a lot of times combination of a little bit of electric fence, but but I think that the technology of electric fence has just been such a game changer in allowing these techniques to be biomimicked on a on a commercial scale and to be replicated anywhere in the world in a low in a low capital you know a low capital way so. Uh, developed countries, undeveloped countries, dry places, wet places, doesn't matter. It's, it's very replicatable. So there's, there's nothing about topography, location, culture, uh, anything that, that, that's an impediment to this kind of, um, this kind of control of the, of the pruning stock. Now, um, to the second part of the question, so how do we replicate you? How do we make more of these uh, happen? Is well, we simply we simply start patronizing them. There there is grass finished beef available uh, everywhere in the country, certainly in the U.S. and um, and so find it and begin patronizing it. And one of the look the fact is that the market farmers and ranchers have always grown to the market when the market moves. To this, they, they grow that. When the market moves to something else, they grow that. Um, at the end of the day, farmers will grow what people want. And so as long as you say, well, it's too inconvenient or uh, it, it, it's too hard to find or whatever, as long as you uh, make those kind of excuses, nothing's going to happen. Uh, people who want to blame the farmer for the way things are, um, the farmers are only doing what, what the marketplace is asking for. So change the market, change the farmer. That's, that's 
really simple. And and from a policy standpoint, of course, you know, farmers, there are fewer farmers than there are people incarcerated in prison. So we don't have much um, political clout. And so the thing the thing is, it rests squarely on the shoulders of the marketplace of the of the consumer to make this happen. So how do you get more of me? Well, you just start you start buying from people like me, make us successful, and there will be more and more of us. And and so you create additional ones on the one hand, and you withdraw you withdraw the support for the other side, and um, you know, it's like the old Chinese proverb of the, the grandfather that had a set of pup, you know, dogs and the little child asked grandpa, you know, well, which, which puppies are going to get bigger? And the grandpa says, the ones you feed. And so, uh, if we, if we feed one side over the other, it's going to grow. Yeah, I mean, uh, simple market economics, you know, like I said, I've, you know, I've, I've talked to some ranchers are doing this and, you know, I think there's, you know, issues with USDA processing centers and some difficulties with, you know, with, with that sort of issue and then being able to sell. Cause I, I, do you sell, do you sell direct to consumer? Is that what your operation yeah. does? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, you know, again, obviously you avoid the, you know, the, the Tyson foods and the Cargills and stuff like that by, by selling direct to consumer. And I'm, I'm really excited to, see more and more people out there. And, and we're certainly, Zach and I have been, we've had a lot of ranchers on there. We try to, we try to, you know, get people in contact with those. And that's something I'm trying to do is, is develop a network that, that has more ranchers connected with these consumers. Um, what is, you know, so let's talk about available range land because, you know, I think, and, and I don't, again, you, you know, this obviously more than I, there's talk about how many cattle you can run per, per acre or per hectare. Um, what you can sustainably do and, and what you can, what do we have in the capacity? Let's just leave maybe in the United States. Are we using every bit of rangeland we possibly have? Can we convert more of that? You know, can we, you know, we, we had that, you know, the, 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 the dust bowl of the 1930s after the bison went away and it finally caught up, I guess, is why that, that occurred. Maybe, maybe I'm mistaken on that, but are we, do we have enough rangeland where we can put more cattle out there than we already have? Can we, can we increase our herd beyond 93 million if we needed to? Oh, no, no question. We, we we haven't even begun to see the, the the end of it. And the dust the dust bowl did not come on grasslands. The dust bowl came from from tillage, from plowing it all up, uh, and, and turning the turning the roots upside down. But uh, the 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 capacity that we have. I mean, I can just give you our own statistics here on, on our place in in Augusta County where we live here. So if you if you came over here and you bought a hundred acres, let's say you bought a hundred acre farm uh, piece of property here in our county, and you went down to the say the county office, the extension service, says, hey, look, I just bought a hundred acres. How many cows can I run on that? So they'll pull it up on a computer, and they've got your you know they've got the the average precipitation, uh, degree days, frost dates, uh, soil type, you know, and in a minute you know it'll spit out, uh, and and in our county. The average it'll spit out will be 80 cow days per acre. Now, 80 cow days per acre represents um, that an acre can can feed one cow for 80 days a year, or 80 cows for one day a year. What one one cow day is what one cow will eat in a day. If I took if I took all the food that you ate today, put it on a plate, that would be one person day of food. So so one one cow day is the you know is what what one cow will eat in a day 
and in our county the average is 80. So on our farm here, we average 400 cow days per acre. Um, now that's five times the county average, and we have and we have not planted a seed. We've not used a bag of chemical fertilizer, and 60 years ago, our place averaged 1% organic matter and was the armpit of the community. Today, it averages 8.2% organic matter and is arguably the, the greenest, most lush farm in the community. That's not bragging. That's simply paying homage to these principles that I've discussed that, that I, I can attest. You know, they were, I've grown up with this. I, I remember walking this place and never setting foot on a piece on a blade of grass. Why? Because it was overgrazed. It was mismanaged. It was, it, it was, it was terrible. And, and today, uh, I mean, you know, people can turn their ankles on the earthworm casting. Uh, why? Well, because, you know, the <clears throat> organic matter and, and what we've done. And so uh, when we say five times the county average in production, I mean, just imagine if the neighbor would do that and his neighbor would do that and the whole county would do that and the whole state would do that. Suddenly you realize, you know, we don't we don't have a production problem. We have a management problem. It's, it, it, yeah, it actually it's not the cow, it's the how. It's, and and when when the naysayers say, well, but, but cows are inefficient, you know, well, of course they're inefficient. That's why they build soil. If they were as efficient as a squash plant, they would deplete all the soil. If they were as efficient as soybeans, we, we would already have starved to death. The very inefficiency of the herbivore is what puts back more than they take. It's what makes, it's what drives the, um, you know, the regenerative capacity of the ecosystem. And so, of course, they're inefficient. That's exactly what, you know, what makes it so wonderful. But, but their inefficiency does not mean they're not producing a lot of nutrition per acre or that you're not actually getting a lot of food per acre. It's just, it's just symptomatic of, of um, you know, of, of the efficiency of extraction, the herbivore compared to, say, a you know, tomato plant or something. But yeah. you know, the reason... The reason that the planet is full of animals and there's animals everywhere and there used to be way, way more animals and big animals, you know, nine foot wombats in Australia. There was, you know, megafauna throughout uh, uh, Europe. You know, I mean, think about mastodons and, and I mean, going back to the dinosaurs, there, there, there were massive. I mean, the the the, uh, the the sheer volume of animals. I mean, the U.S. the U.S. had more pounds of beavers 500 years ago than it does pounds of people today that's just beavers and they were of course all herbivores um and then you know then you stack on the bison what you know 200 million uh you know a couple million wolves each eating 20 pounds of meat a day uh then you have the elk the deer uh the, the birds i mean audubon sat under a tree in 1800 he said I haven't been able to see the sun for three days, he wrote in his diary. I haven't been able to see the sun for three days because of the flock of passenger pigeons flying over. I mean, can you imagine a flock of birds so big it blotted out the sun for three days? I mean, th this is, you know, this is this is our historical record, and this is before Tyson chicken houses, John Deere, you know, hybrid corn, you know, any of this stuff. It was an incredibly, uh, incredibly prolific, abundant place because the animals were moving, mobbing, and mowing. 
Yeah, Joel, what you've been touching on is is really interesting because we actually had uh, Nicolette Hahn Naiman on the show a couple episodes back and we kind of proposed a similar question to her because she follows like a holistic farming practice. And uh, we asked like, well, what is the capacity? Um, and And she said like, really, like the capacity is so large compared to what it is currently that we're just guessing at how productive it could be if we would do do some regenerative practices and kind of return the topsoil to what it was a hundred years ago. But yeah. um, she said that there was no reason to believe that we couldn't have an excess of 30% in terms of being able to supply enough meat for the country uh, given holistic practices. Uh, so I guess kind of like my question is, is that kind of how you see it? And then on top of that is uh, when you mentioned the, I, I'm blanking on, on what the micro, the microbiome term you used, but that regeneration of, of that, is that what is going to be, is us just not kind of knowing enough about that? one of the reasons why we can't look at this as we need to fix this with technology versus we need to return to biology since your biology has essentially figured this out. And we, as humans, <laughs> think we know everything already when in reality, we know very little. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, well, you're exactly right. We certainly do know very little. Um, as far as Nicolette's, uh, um, you know, uh, increase in productive capacity, no question. In fact, I'd say she's, she's very low. I mean, uh, again, you know, we're, we're, we're five times the county average. I mean, if that were just duplicated just in our county alone, uh, it, it would be, you know, it would be phenomenal. Um, and, and, and the things the, the, the things that happen as a result, I mean, I, I said, we went to, we, we went from 1% to 8%, um, organic matter. And, and when you realize that, Every percent increase in organic matter. Now, this doesn't matter. Doesn't matter topography. It doesn't matter rainfall. Doesn't matter anything. Whenever you increase organic matter one percent, you increase the water retentive capacity in the soil by twenty thousand gallons per acre. That's like that's like a standard measure worldwide anywhere. If you go from one percent to two percent organic matter, you've just increased your water retentive capacity. 20,000 gallons an acre. So on our place, we've gone seven clicks from 1% to 8%. That's seven clicks. Seven times 20 is 140,000. Well, you multiply that by 100 acres, you're up there in 14 million gallons of water. And you do that in dry areas, California, Utah, Nevada. I mean, you start making those kinds of, of changes. When, and when you look, when you look back at, at what was done uh, back in the early days. And you think back of those native prairies and the ranchers that went to those areas and the back, you know, 1900, late 1800s, right after the bison were destroyed. And those rangelands, the carrying capacity was phenomenally higher than it is today. And the reason that it, it um, stopped or, or, you know, went down was because we're not moving, mobbing, mowing. I was recently in Australia and, um, and talked to a fellow who was buying a big 100,000 acre spread up in Queensland. And um, he had the original ranch herd books 
from 1820 to 1870 when it was first, you know, Europeanized and then up to 1870. And, um, and the acreage hadn't changed the same, same acreage, same everything. And for those first, um, you know, 30 years or so, that ranch supported back in those early days, they had 28,000 cows. <clears throat> Today, it doesn't even support eight and they're overgrazing even at eight. So that shows an incredible ecological deterioration uh, manifested in the poorer grass of, of ecological devastation over those 150, 160 years. And, and that, that has happened virtually worldwide. So it's, it's hard to even imagine what proper uh, herbivorous management would do, you know, obviously some places would respond more than others, but, and, and obviously a place that's very, very dry can never grow as much grass as a place that's real wet. I, I get that. But, but when you start looking at the different places of the world and you start seeing what the potential is and what's been lost, uh, it's, it's um you know it's pretty dramatic. Hey Joel, let me let me just interject a couple points here. Um you know one thing that you know I learned that you know grasslands have a better capacity to sequester carbon than even forests do and so it's a very healthy, you know, environment to kind of promote at least that's my understanding of that. But when when you talk about, you know, your carrying capacity now goes, you know, goes up by 4 500%. So now you can you could potentially run four times as many cattle as you could, you know, you know from from an earlier system. How long does it take to convert the, the, the overgraves, dried out, you know, landscape into something that would support, you know, a, a big increase like that? And then once you've done that and you just say, okay, now I, can, now I can run four times as many cattle on my same 100 acres, now do we get into a situation where we've got too many cattle together and now we've got to give these guys extra antibiotics because they're so close together and we have some of the issues we see with, you know, some of the, some of the, the feedlot operations or how does, how does that sort of interplay uh, uh, good questions both so <clears throat> so the conversion the conversion varies obviously from place to place and it varies on depend, depends on how bad it is um, uh, so so generally uh, let me say it this way the more things you do right the faster the conversion happens and, and I include in doing things right, I include a very highly integrated approach, including, for example, in Colorado, um, all of the dead trees need to be chipped up and um, used as compost, blown back on the land to increase organic matter rather than going up in smoke and fire. Uh, you know, the fact that we are, that we have chainsaws and chipping capacity today to be able to, to integrate biomass, forestal and open land biomass and be able to, um, you know, to, to, to integrate those two. And instead, we're spending four to five billion dollars on wildfires um, is just, it's, it's, um, What's the word? It's unconscionable. It's immoral. It's <laughs> besides being foolish, it's just crazy. So, so um, how long to convert? 
you know, it, it certainly doesn't happen in a year, but it it happens pretty fast, actually. Um, the the problem is that most people don't don't do a lot of things. Uh, they they say, well, we're gonna we're gonna start moving our cows once a week. Well, that's you know that's like ten percent of what you got to do. Uh, if you don't move them once a day, you're not gonna see um, uh, conversion. And so so my starting point is move them once a day, religiously. And you'll see so many things happen so fast, it'll knock your socks off. So, because I know that as soon as you move them once a day, the herd, um, that means you're going to have better fencing, you're going to have water, you're going to just, you, and you're going to test yourself every day. So, in a month, you're going to have 30 self administered tests, and you're going to become much more skilled more rapidly. You'll be able to, you know, pick up nuances and see things. So, so um, here in our area, you know, conversion, um, you know, we we see um, we see pretty much a doubling in a in the first year just by moving them every day by controlling. That means we've got to put in electric fence, we've got to put in a water line, so we can move them every day very very efficiently. It just takes a few minutes, and um, and so that's the infrastructure we put in to enable us to to do that. And we see. We, we, we lease actually now about 12 properties in the area, and we have yet, we've been doing this for 25 years, we have yet to go on to a single leased property and not double it in, in 12 months uh, from what it had been the previous 12 months. Now, we don't double it again the second year. You know, then it's a gentle, gentle, you know, incline uh, after that. But just getting control uh, makes a big difference. Now, um, what about health problems? You so you start start putting uh, you know 400 head on two acres, and you clump them up like that. You mob them together. Aren't you going to have health problems? No, because you're moving them every day. So nature nature sanitizes two ways. There's two ways nature sanitizes itself, protects itself from uh, toxicity and pathogenicity. The first way is with vibrant decomposition, like in a compost pile. Okay, so that's that's one way. The second way is with rest and sunshine. So that's the pasture model. So by moving them every day, they're on a completely new spot today. Tomorrow they're on another spot. The next day they're on another spot. And they won't come back to that first spot for, for days uh, or even weeks. And, of course, if things are dormant, either through cold or drought, then they might not come back. They might not come back for a year. The point is that during that that uh, rest period, the previous paddock is um, is host free, and so it ha the rest period uh, because it's host free, it crashes any pathogen um, populations. They crash due to lack of a host. Now that said. We do here at our farm, we do some, some pretty innovative things, I think, to mimic, to even further multi-speciate mimic. So we run a lot of pastured poultry, both meat birds and layers. We have an eggmobile. We have eggmobiles, those are, those are portable um, uh, chicken houses, that we run behind the cow herd. The chickens scratch through the cow patties, eat out the fly larvae, parasite larvae, uh, grasshoppers and crickets, and essentially sanitize 
the, the, the paddock behind the cows. We follow the cows with about three or four days uh, behind with the chickens or five days. And, um, and again, that's simply biomimicking the birds who follow the herbivores in nature, the egret on the rhinos nose, the birds that follow the wildebeest, um, all those, they have these birds. And so, uh, so we follow the cows with the chickens. And, uh, and that, and that uh, symbiotic relationship um, acts as a, a second hedge against any um, you know, pathogenicity. Yeah, Joel, it's, it's really fascinating to hear you describe just kind of like how all these pieces of the puzzle fit together and how removing even what would seem like one tiny piece to that puzzle can kind of turn the whole thing upside down. And it just goes to show you how delicate of a balance these things are. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of people will probably never connect the dots between the birds and the need for like for antibiotics or, or lack thereof, I guess, in your case. Um, and I think that's just really interesting and really eye-opening. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about uh, that, the manpower side of things, because you had mentioned like um, with a system like this, a holistic system, it's not a we don't need to reduce our herds. In fact, we need to increase our herds. And with that, we need to take people away from some of these maybe now unnecessary positions like pharmaceutical stuff and put them, put them back on the ranches. And I kind of see that in two lights for one, like, we've had other ranchers on the show that have said like the average age of the U S cattleman or U S rancher has is progressively getting older. And that shows that there's not a lot of youth kind of coming into that industry. And I can appreciate that that's kind of the way things are now or the current structure, which is, is probably, I would think a scary endeavor to be a, a, a tradition or a, a rancher in today's standards where you're working with these big conglomerates and you know, there's probably people who would be interested in buying your ranch and you're looking at just, do I keep working this hard for potentially really low return or do I sell and all this, all these other variables. But then when I think of like your approach and I kind of think of like the younger generation uh, that are kind of, I guess, maybe a little more in tune with uh, paying attention to the environment or getting a little maybe frustrated with modern like nine to five office type positions and I could see a poll that would be like some of the younger generations would, would love to work on a setup like that. So is, do you see that kind of as a light uh, kind of in the end of, at the end of the tunnel, maybe, so to speak with a potential new crop of young ranchers doing it like a holistic way, kind of coming into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And if so, like, how do they, how do they even start? <laughs> Uh, yeah, what a great what a great uh, question. Um, I actually wrote a book on this uh, um, called Fields of Farmers: Germinating and Starting you know, Young Farmers, because that that is now a lot of what we do here. We we run an intern apprenticeship program, and we're cranking out uh, uh, new young farmers. And it's just you know, it's the delight of my life to to be mentoring these young people in. And and you are exactly right. Uh, you know, thirty years ago or 20 years ago, a little over 20 years ago, when we started this uh, apprenticeship program, most of them were, you know, 18, 19 years old. Today, most of them are 28 to 32. They're white collar, um, many of them with, you know, advanced degrees. And they just, they absolutely uh, burn out in their Dilbert cubicle, punching numbers in the cyberspace. And they're looking for something meaningful. You know, they're, they're sitting there in their cubicle and they're staring out the window, wishing they were the ones riding the zero turn uh, mower uh, mowing the corporate headquarters lawns, you know, and, 
And so, uh, so it, it truly is a, you know, an amazing thing. I, I really believe that we would uh, have plenty of young people coming into farming if they actually believed they could make a living at it. But, you know, parents, family, friends, guidance counselors, you know, nobody, nobody um, actually, whatever, encourages them or assumes that farming is a viable vocation anymore. So how do we, how do we get from here to there, and you're right. The average farmer is now almost 60 years old, and uh, from a business standpoint, we know that any time the average age of a of an economic sector in a culture is more than 35 years old, that's an economic sector in decline. So we're we're now 25 years over the 35 uh, threshold, and so so you know where do so where do we go from here? And so. Um, I'll give you I'll give you three ideas. One is that um, we need mobile farms, uh, mobility, portable farms, and portable infrastructure. And so one of the neat things about livestock is that it is portable. You know, trees aren't very portable. Orchards and and uh, uh, you know bramble fruits and things like that. Now, you could say that produce, you know, vegetable operations are are fairly portable, and and they are. Um, you know, the, because you, you know, they're an annual, so you can get a, you can get, you can get things in and get your money back out in one season. Um, so, so they're, they're, you know, quasi portable, but when you start talking about animals, they're really portable. But when we think about animals in the, in the orthodox conventional way, they seem to be the least portable uh, enterprise because you have, you know, factory houses for chickens, pigs, feedlots for beef, and and you're thinking about this, you know, incredibly um, stationary infrastructure. But if you make your infrastructure like we have, that's that's mobile infrastructure, then suddenly you don't have to own the land. Where I'm going with this is with mobile infrastructure, it takes the land cost out of the equation, so you can have a viable farm business and place it on land you borrow, lease, collaborate on. You know, there's not a wheat farm in the country that you couldn't stack a pastured poultry operation on. Uh, there's not an orchard that you can't put uh, chickens underneath or turkeys or ducks uh, and run, you know, duck eggs. Um, uh, this, this stacking this stacking effect where you stack enterprises on a land base um, is is generally the way in uh, for young people. Or if you want to get into something you know more capital intensive like like beef uh, cattle, for example, then um, you you simply team up with somebody and you begin running cows on land that you lease or borrow or you know or or, or share on. Um, but the point is, portable infrastructure, mobility gets you out of land purchase, which is the number one impediment for young people coming into farming. And I definitely believe that we are moving into an era where we're going to have uh, we're going to have a be more like Euro, be more European, where you have a a farm management class of people, um, and then you have land ownership people. Land ownership will be people who have made money and are wanting 
a defensive posture. We want to hold on to our, our wealth. And the management people will be folks who are uh, economically offensive and trying to earn a nest egg enough to where they can eventually buy some land. So mobility. Number two is modular. You want your infrastructure to be modular. So, you know, the problem with having a, you know, growing a chicken for Tyson is first thing you got to do is build a half a million dollar house. But with what we do, you just have to cancel your subscription to Netflix for a month and you've got enough money to build a, a portable chicken shelter. And if you like it, you can build a second one. If you like it, you can build a, a third one. And if you like it as much as we do, you can build 150 of them. The point is we've got a lot of roof space, but it's scaled over time with real cash flow and no debt and was enabled because it's modular. So you have scale, you scale up, not by centralization, but by duplication. That's the idea. And so you don't make bigger structure. You don't make bigger houses. You simply make more of them. And as a result, it allows you to scale without debt, and, and it gives you a, a way to enter. The third one then, so you have mobility, uh, modular, and then the third one is that it's management intensive. And of course, this is where the, you know, where the naysayers say, aha, I, I knew there was a catch, it takes more farmers, you know, and they say it with a, with a bit of a condescending uh, smirk, you know, as if they can't imagine what could be worse for us for an advanced uh, technological society with this level of sophistication than to have more farmers. But we have strategically chosen to add people in rather than, rather than um, energy intensity, pharmaceutical intensity, and capital intensity. So we become people intensive as opposed to energy, capital, and pharmaceutically intensive. What that means is, and, and infrastructurally intensive, what that means is that we move our equity from physical stuff and expense, our equity then moves to what people can know and master, develop skills doing, and our customers. And so our equity moves from physical to non-physical, and suddenly there's no banker in the world that can ever say, I'm going to foreclose on your skill or I'm going to repossess your knowledge or your customers. And so as we move into people centricity away from energy, capital, and, and um, a pharmaceutical centricity, as we move into the people element, suddenly the farm can become nimble. And we know in business, you know, it's not the big that eats the that eat the small is the fast that eat the slow. It's nimbleness. It's being able to be nimble to move with the changing context of our day that allow a business to be able to adapt, innovate, and and change to its, you know, to, to whatever the new contexts are. So so mobile, modular, management intensive. Those are the three kind of what I call the recipes for making a different entry climate for a young person to be able to uh, to get in. And we we are seeing uh, young people jump into this. It's just amazing the, um, you know, the, the kind of things that are developing. And you're right, these aging farmers uh, are aging out. And, and so a lot of land is becoming available. I mean, we had a, we had one, um, uh, in turn, an apprentice that finished, 
and he was from upstate New York, Ithaca, Syracuse area, went back home, and within a month, he was offered from three different landowners a total of a 1,000 acres of farmland for free could you just come and do something with it. He didn't take it all because he didn't feel like he could. He took 40 of them. Uh, but, um, you know, this, this, is, this is excellent land. Now, you know, different parts of the country wouldn't, wouldn't have that opportunity. But I'm just saying there are some incredible opportunities coming down uh, because of the exiting of these aging out farmers. And, and in the next 15 years, 50% of America's agriculture equity that's land, buildings, and equipment is going to change hands. That has never happened in any civilization in history except in conquest. It's never happened in peace. I'm not saying we're going to go into war. All I'm saying is it's never happened in peace. So we live in very interesting times, and, um, and you know, it's exciting to be able to kind of have a handle on a, on a recipe for success so that these lands can be accessed by a new generation of of um, of land stewards and and caressers uh, caressers rather than conquistadors. Joe, I mean that's you know, and I, if if this were a Sesame show, I think today's episode would be brought to us by the letter M because you have a lot of M <laughs> words that we like to learn about. You know, one of the the, the interesting things um, when when we talk about you know rest restoring the soil using these animals moving them, and it's exciting. I just wonder, and, and I've seen some hints of, of places, and I'm, it may have been Australia, or I can't remember, maybe it was in California, where they, where they were proposing laws that would sort of give uh, ranchers a financial incentive if they became uh, a net co- you know, carbon sink, you know, if, they, if they did things that would, would right. improve that. And so I think if we get more legislature and people behind that, they'll actually vote for it you know, or, or, or pressure their, their state representative or U.S. congressman or senator to, to sort of pass that stuff that'll encourage more of this activity. Talk to us a little bit about the integration, because you talked about the wheat fields and stuff like that, and, and then putting in the orchards. Talk to us about the integration of animals and plant agriculture, because I think that's something that a lot of people think, seem to think they're completely removed and distanced from each other. And, and, and really, it's a, it's a very much of a, you know, a require, an integrated system that they both work together. Can you talk about how, how you can, how we can integrate plants and animals and, and get the best of both worlds perhaps with, with those systems? Sure. Sure. Well, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so when you think about, let's think about just bugs, um, vineyard, orchard, whatever. Uh, first of all, you need to, you need to mow it. I mean, uh, most people with a vineyard or an orchard, want to want to mow it and so they they're going to run out there with a mower where you can mow it with sheep mow it with turkeys um you can mow it with uh weeder geese i mean they're they're they, they didn't mow orchards in you know in spain and france 500 years ago uh they used animals and and this this was historically historically normal and so the fact that we don't much anymore is not indicated is not indicative of a new you know sophisticated evolution it's it's indicative of a new devolution to a segregated a system and so if we run to an integrated system then then we can you know park the mower park the petroleum and let animals do the work and i i think that that letting animals do the work is one of the you know one of the critical elements of actually um 
using animals in the nooks and crannies and niches where they've historically been used. And there and there is a lot of of, of that opportunity. I mean, you can mow a golf course with sheep. You don't have to do it with a with a machine. I mean, we just um, last week we mowed our lawn with the sheep here. Uh, we don't do it all the time, and we we then did run the mower over. But but the most of it was harvested uh, by the sheep. Um, you know, chickens through vegetable operations, uh, debugging. Um, you know, Indian runner uh, uh, ducks are the are the the mainstay. They're, they're the historical mainstay of gardening because ducks don't they don't um, peck vegetables and they don't scratch. Uh, chickens will scratch, so they're a little bit problematic if you've got a you know a garden bed or something like that. But ducks don't scratch; they just go through and eat the worms and the bugs and the and the um, uh, snails and all that sort of thing. Um, run ducks under orchard, you know, uh, they'll eat the Japanese beetles. I mean, there there's just so many. Um, yeah, uses for the animals. There's a ranch in California, the Pacines Ranch, and they've actually developed a a, um, a muzzle. It's a little harness you put on a sheep, and and when the sheep puts his head down, they can graze, and when they lift their head up, um, it shuts off their mouth and they can't graze. One of the big problems with sheep in vineyards is that they can you know reach up and and if your trellises are too low. Your vines are too low. The sheep can reach up and eat the eat the, the grapevines. So uh, this little muzzle thing um, allows them to keep the sheep. When the sheep raises his head, then the muzzle you know shuts off his mouth and he can't he can't graze. So um, you know there's there's some really cool uh, technology, some neat things. You know electrified netting. Now this uh, this real cool uh, electrified netting that has stainless steel wires woven through polyethylene webs um, you know we can run sheep ducks turkeys geese all sorts of things again with tremendous control um, I was mesmerized one year I was out in California Northern California up there where they grow olives and um, was in this uh, olive what do you call it grove <laughs> I don't even know uh, but anyway the suckers, these these olive grove, uh, these olive tree suckers come up in the middle of the tree, and they always have to be pruned off. And this outfit was doing it with goats, and they had a couple hundred goats, and they had this netting. And of course, these goats were climbing up. The, there were goats 12 feet high up in these olive trees, and they were just as happy as could be. And they were pruning the interior of that tree to maintain, you know, uh, the airflow and, and open at that open bowl um, idea. And they were just, you know, moving through the orchard with this uh, electric netting material. And it was, I could have sat there and watched them all day. I mean, imagine these goats climbing up in these olive trees 12 feet tall. It was pretty, it was pretty dramatic. Um, I was in a, uh, just finished with this, uh, I was down in uh, Arizona at a, at a neat farm. It was only 12 acres, small farm. But uh, they were making a full-time living on 12 acres in Arizona. They did have irrigation. And uh, what they were doing, they had a vineyard, but they put the they put the vineyard, they put the vines two or three times as far apart as you normally would in a vineyard. So they were wide enough they could run pasture they could run pasture chickens down through there for three years, 
and then they would put uh, vegetables in for a year and then garlic in for a year and then go back to pasture. And so they were, uh, they were getting grapes and, um, and vegetables and chicken and garlic off of this acreage, not any of which was the production per square foot that you would want in a, you know, in a, uh, any, whatever, an efficient, a normal production, but you add up 40%, 40%, 40%, 40%, and you have 160% of the normal production. They were getting more production per square yard than any of those outfits would normally get as a single enterprise. And the beautiful thing was because of the integration and the rotation from year to year, they didn't have any of the bugs. The grapevines stayed healthy because by um, having them spread out a little more, they got a lot more wind flow through. And so they didn't have any fungus or molds or anything in the grapevines like most people do because they weren't so, they weren't so dense. But they didn't have to be so dense because they were producing something else. They didn't have to justify the acreage the price of the acreage on just one thing. They were able to justify the acreage with multiple things, which reduced the density requirements on each of the individual things, which, you know, allowed it to be uh, much more, uh, you know, free of, of pathogens and all sorts of issues. And so the integration of animals in with plants is absolutely historically normal. In fact, it's extremely abnormal to, segregate them and um and i've just seen some pretty pretty amazing things that animals can do if you know if they're allowed to express their distinctiveness in a in a horticultural setting joel let me uh because i've heard some projections about you know our soil and how many yields we have left um, we have this you know system now where we have extensive monocropping going on throughout the u.s and other parts of the world I mean, what, what, what is the real situation with that? I mean, do we, is there something we have to do that's got to be, tr to change? Are we, are we headed for uh, serious problems with that? Well, absolutely. Uh, yeah. What we're, what we're doing right now is, is degenerative and, you know, the big question is, well, when, um, you just have to realize that the West, you know, Illinois, Ohio, Indiana, uh, the, the bread basket there, um, that was settled a hundred years or more, 150 years after the mid-Atlantic region where I live. And so what we saw here or what we have here in, in our area uh, is what the Midwest is going to look like in another hundred years if it continues its same trajectory. I mean, right now, I think the rule of thumb is that every bushel of corn costs us two bushels of soil. And you, know, you look out there in those, that fertile prairie and that black soil, and you say, man, you know, how could you ever deplete this? Well, you can. I mean, who would have thought here that in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia when the Europeans came that in, you know, 150 years, we would lose, you know, three to five feet of soil and what used to be fertile, uh, fertile land is now a bunch of rock outcroppings uh, where we've lost the soil around it. Now I realize we're, you know, we're hillier than, than the Midwest and all that, but, but the, 
the trajectory is the same. And, uh, and so the, the sediment, the soil loss that's coming off of our, our lands and then the desertification that's occurring uh, in, in the arid regions as aquifers deplete. And this is, and this is not just here. I mean, it's, it's around the world. I was recently in Australia, in uh, South, South Australia, Adelaide. I was up at a, a permaculture forest farm, and uh, the guy had the deed from the original purchase. And at that time, they sold land based on how far you had to dig down to the aquifer. And um, and uh, the, the you know when you were hand digging in 1820. Um, it made a big difference whether you had to dig, you know, two meters or, or four meters to, to get to water. And uh, on his place, the original was, I think, three three meters down, it was like three yards down to water. And um, it took them about 30 years to pump out that aquifer. Then they went down another bunch. Then he went into the third one. And now they're, right now, they're in the fourth aquifer. They're down about 180 meters, which would be, you know, what? push it 200 yards deep and um, it'd be like 600 feet and they're about to deplete that aquifer. Well, you know, where do you go from here? I mean, eventually you, you, you run out. And, um, and so the story of ancient civilizations, Greece, Rome, India, you know, the, the, the Huns, uh, the stories of these ancient civilizations are often about resource depletion. I mean, Egypt, uh, Mesopotamia, the, the Persian Empire. Um, when you think of the amount of, um, you know, the amount of fertility that, that those civilizations had, and you look at them today, and you realize, you know, goodness, you know, what happened? This is this is this is what happens when you you know uh, deplete soil on a graphic scale. Um, it, you, there, there's there's nothing left, and you can't you can't replace it. I mean, Sir Albert Howard, writing in 1943 in an Agricultural Testament, he says that it's the temptation of every generation of humans to take what nature spent centuries or millennia building and convert it to cash and of course that's a that's a pretty prescient statement and we see it you know all over the world hey joel i have um one more follow-up question to the kind of stuff that i asked about before with kind of the new entry of younger workers and having this more approachable system than say trying to save up or take out a massive loan and buy a farm and kind of start out way behind uh, is I want to look at the other side of that and think of like, let's say, for example, we had someone listening to this show and they like their job and their job pays them quite well. And they want to invest in something like this. Is there opportunities for folks to invest in land and then have that be utilized by some of these new farmers who are looking, who, who don't want to buy the land, but want to use the land and then do the stacking on it. Like you were describing in turn, previously kind of cheap, exhausted land into now really nice fertile land. Well, absolutely. Um, 
call me. (laughs) 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 Yes, yes, there certainly is. Here's the problem, though. Here's the problem. Um, Most people, and, and the reason I know about this is because we have numerous people you know, calling us with this very with this very question. Big-hearted, sincere-hearted, you know, want to want to help, want to change things. The problem is that they want a you know a an eight percent return on their on their investment. And the problem with that is that land in the last fifty years has gone from a valuation based on productive capacity to a value to a market valuation that has nothing to do with productive capacity it has to do with development potential location viewscape um, any number of other things and to, to put that in perspective when mom and dad bought this farm in 1961 it was $90 an acre you could you could uh, raise half of a feeder calf on an acre in a year that was worth $90. So the productive capacity was a one-to-one ratio. In other words, you could, you could buy an acre and you could produce the value of that acre in, in, in production in one year. Okay. Today, Mm -hmm. That acre is seven thousand dollars. Half of a stalker calf is three hundred and fifty. So the ratio has gone from one to one to twenty to one land to productive capacity. We don't get any more sunlight. We don't get any more rain. We don't get any more. Uh, you know, fairy fertilizer dust. I mean, there's nothing additional that happens, but the ratio in 50 years has gone from one to one to 20 to one. And that is why the old business axiom, what got you here won't get you there, is true. And what worked for grandpa won't work for you. And so, um, so investors have to appreciate that um, that when they when they do this and 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 I encourage it. I mean, this is wonderful. This is part of uh, having at least a piece of your portfolio that's doing good instead of doing exploitative. Mm-hmm. Um, is is to realize that this is this is a long term deal. This is this is not going to make you rich. Not going to you know give you a big return but yes there are few things that i can think of that are more noble than investing in land for a uh, a fledgling farmer yes interesting do you know like is there is there like an entry point where like you need to save up to x amount of dollars before you should even consider getting in i'm just trying to think of this kind of almost like a like the stock market with with yeah. the mindset like you described, this is the long game, not the short game. We're not going to try to do penny stocks and get rich overnight. It's like right. you put this money in when you're when you're relatively young, and and you likely won't take it out until you retire. So like a long term investment kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, a couple things I would suggest. I mean, um, if you start searching for outfits that, that act as brokerages for this, um, right now I only know one just off the top of my head um, is, is Iroquois. It's like the, like the tribe of Indians, Iroquois. And what they are is an investment house where they actually pool money. Mm. Then they vet young farmers and buy land. The young farmer then pays them back. What they do, though, is they give that young farmer a three-year, a three-year, no interest. That young farmer has three years to get established and get up and running before they have to start paying the money back. And um, and, and so that that's one outfit I know about, and I'm I, I'm sure there are others. I just don't know who they are. The other thing I would suggest for somebody is the outfit called Slow Money. Um, many people have heard of Slow Food, and this is an offshoot. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's a play on the, obviously, you know, plagiarizing the idea of Slow Money. And what this is, this was started by a, a former, you know, um, Wall Street investment bank guru named uh, Woody Tash, and um, and his whole deal and they now are handling uh i don't know 100 million dollars i mean it's it's not pocket change anymore and his whole stick is okay put 90% of your money in regular investments but take 10% it's kind of a tithing kind of idea take 10% and do something really sacred and noble with it and so slow money i don't know that they buy actually buy land but they're especially um, investing in, in um, uh, they'll put money together and do a processing facility, a you know for uh, like slaughtering animals or canning vegetables uh, or a commercial kitchen, um, food services. They're they're trying to, to to create a space here where they enable people. They might uh, they might buy some infrastructure for a young farmer, a rototiller, just amazing the number of little things that, that they do essentially you know interest free um the money does have to be paid back but it's a it, you know without interest it's a little more doable and and um the point is that they act as a as, as a brokerage um and vetting system to be able to let you invest or, or enable you to invest uh any any amount a dollar to a million um, I suppose they'd take them over a million if you had it, but, uh, but anyway, you know, there, there's no, there's no, um, amounts and it, it's quite neat. So, so slow money would be worth looking at as well as Iroquois. And I'm sure there are others that I don't know about, but those are two that I do know about. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's uh, really interesting. I think it, with this podcast episode in general, I think we, we've certainly dove into the holistic management and just farm management and processes in general, but in terms of like breaking it down in a way where I think a lot of people can listen to this and be like, okay, here's something I could do today if I wanted to, or here's kind of uh, a, you know, a positive side to this. I can't mm-hmm. think of one that's really gotten into it as well as we have here today so far. So this has been really informative. Good. Good. That's great. Yeah. I mean, there's a, 
you know, we, we, when we had Alan on, Alan Savory on, it was, it was a lot about management, but, but he wouldn't give us any specifics. So it was a little frustrating. So it's good to hear a, a little more sort of concrete type stuff that, that, that can be done. Um, you know, obviously, you know, there's a difference between working in the Shenandoah Valley and then working up in the, you know, frigid North and North Dakota or even out in, you know, New Mexico where you got all that scrub and stuff like that. And so do you, do you find that, that, the general principles still hold in all those different regions and, and, and sort of challenges? Yes, the, the, definitely the general principles hold. There are, look, every single place has an asset and a liability, every single place. I mean, one of the beauties of the arid regions is that they, they don't have so much mineral leaching problems as we do here. Uh, because they just don't get as much moisture to leach through, and so they tend to have uh, highly mineralized soils. The thing they lack is moisture. Um, but that even has a, a golden thread to it in that because the humidity is so low, um, mature grass doesn't deteriorate. Here, we have about a 90-day window. If we don't harvest mature grass within 90 days, the humidity literally just sucks the sucks the nutrition out of the plant. I mean, it's just, just, it's just gone. It just turns to cardboard. Whereas in the arid regions, it essentially turns into raisins. You know, you get dehydrated uh, foliage that maintains its nutritive capacity, and it just sits there. And it might sit there. It might, you, you can go there, you know, two years. Uh, it can sit there as standing forage, brown, yes, but extremely uh, palatable and nutritious for a long, long time. So uh, what I've found traveling around the world and, and, and talking to other, you know, gurus and stuff is that, that, um, that a perfect place does not exist. And so you simply have to adhere to the principles, customize them for your situation, and realize that um, that you're just going to have to adapt to those principles in your particular region. But but the, the principles of carbon, of animal movement, those kinds of things, those are the same from the tropics to the to the Sahara. Yeah, so I mean, and I'll, just, I'll see if I was a good student or not, but the mobbing, moving, and mowing thing, you know, holds wherever you go, basically. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And do, sure you does. do you find that uh, there is, you know, within the ranching community in general, at least maybe, I don't know, worldwide or U.S., that there are more and more people that are, that are accepting this, or do you get a lot of people that just think it's not worth their time, or what, what's been your perception over the last maybe decade or so, is it, is it, which direction does it tend to be moving? Well, um, eh, that's a, that's a difficult one. Uh, usually nobody embraces something new until they have to. <laughs> Most people stick with the status quo and the orthodoxy until it's too uncomfortable to stay with the, you know, to stay with it anymore. So, Crisis creates interest in innovation, and you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could if we could jump from a sinking ship earlier, um, like you know when we know when we see the ship 
at port leaning to the side, just don't get on it. <laughs> but, but we don't. We don't. We wait till it's out in the ocean, and then and then when it's about to sink, then we jump. And so that's kind of the way it is. And but but the the flip side of that is the older you are the less likely you are to jump because you don't have enough energy to, to do something new. And so here we are, uh, 2018, the, uh, the median, the median net income on farms in America was minus $1,200. That was median. Um, anybody watching farm and ranch news, I mean, from dairy to whatever, I mean, it, it is in, it is in free fall, uh, for in the middle and of course the the newly released uh farm census reports you know bear this out uh extremely extremely small farms are increasing little you know minus little 10 acres and fewer and mega mega farms are increasing as well but it's the hollowing out of the middle it's the it's the mid-sized farm that's um that that's that's dropping like flies and so things are not healthy there and um and and of course, that's also representative of the, this elder, you know, this, this elder problem. So right here at a time when it's so critical for people to be innovating and, and, and looking at new ideas, they're too old to, to try something new. And so this is, this is the big, you know, conundrum right now. And this is why, this is why we, we need to, encourage, facilitate, and, and whatever we can do to get this new generation of young people out here and to empower them to, to take this. Because the, the, old, the old folks are simply not going to change. I can tell you that. I, I deal with them every day. It's all my, my neighbors. Um, you know, I have a bunch of uh, family, uh, my wife's relatives and stuff, and they're farmers. And let me tell you, those old guys, they are they're just, they're going to go down with a ship. <laughs> they're not going to change. And so, uh, so, you know, the, 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 the answer is a new, a new generation. And, um, the question is, you know, do we have enough coming on? And frankly, you know, I don't see them. Um, and we certainly don't have enough mentoring going on. So, you know, it, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, I'm, I'm not a doom and gloomer, you know. I'm, I'm a pretty optimistic person, but I don't prophesy and I don't have a crystal ball. I, I really don't know what's going to happen, and I care, but there's nothing I can do about it except to do better on our own place and with our own young people that we're mentoring, and that's, that's within my sphere of influence, a la Stephen Covey, and that's where I'm going to focus my attention. Yeah, Joel, you brought up a couple of things about, you know, crisis brings change or, or, or innovation or whatever. And, I, you know, we see the same thing with, you know, health. I mean, people don't change their, their habits until they get really sick most of the time. That's what usually drives. That's why young people are like, I'm just going to eat whatever I want until, <laughs> until I can right. change my mind. But I think, so let me just, because, you know, if you, you know, we get a lot of people listening to us and, you know, who knows is going to listen to this. And, and if you've got somebody that's, you know, maybe they're, they're sick of the corporate world and they're in their, you know, early 30s, mid, you know, early 40s or something like that. They say, I want to do something different. What would entice somebody to do what you do? Tell us, what are the, what are, what are the joys of farming or the joys of ranching that, that, that might convince somebody that this is worthwhile doing? 
Oh, man, I don't know if we've got enough time for that. But, uh, yeah, here, here's the, when people ask me, you know, what, what gets you up in the morning? I'll tell you what gets me up in the morning. I get to walk out on the back porch every morning, and I get to step into this, this, this womb of abundance. And I actually get to participate in this great cosmic dance, this, this creation um, uh, show of, of abundance and grace, and I get to participate in massaging it. And, and watch it respond. You know, the earthworms, the chickens, the cows, the tomatoes, the pepper plants. I mean, it, it, it responds to my touch. And, um, and that's, a, that's an incredibly uh, uplifting and gratifying thing. Uh, I get to go out every morning and make a lot of animals happy. Uh, you know, when they get their fresh move, they're fr- you know, and, the, and the cows dance up, kick up their heels, and the chickens, you know, are out of the eggmobiles, and they go running after those cow patties and I mean, it, it is like watching a ballet in the pasture. It's a choreography that is just vibrant with discovery and life. And, um, and it's just, it, 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 it brings you to tears. And then, you know, one of my, one of my favorite um, beauties of a morning is when you're, you know, looking in toward the sun, the more dawn's coming up and, and, um, look into that sun and it's, it's coming across the dew on the grass and every one of those little dew drops is a diamond and it's just sparkling in the, in the pasture. And I mean, there's nothing as beautiful. I mean, we get to watch rainbows and sunsets and deer. And I mean, I was just up this morning picking up some electric fence and here was a turkey hen. I've picked up, I've picked up uh, little baby turkey poults. You know, here's a, here's a turkey hen out in the woods, you know, wild, totally wild and fresh laid, you know, fresh hatched uh, poults, and, and uh, you can pick one up, and the hen goes off 10 feet, sits there and scratches and squawks and carries on, put him down in. Of course, you know, they, they go on about their business. But the, just the, 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 the magic of, of life and the vibrancy of it, the pulsing of it, and, and knowing that, that, you know, we can, that we can just nest into it and immerse into that, into that meaningful sacred life. I mean, it's a it's a really neat place to be compared to the, the artificiality, the sterility, the uh, well, you know, the concrete jungle, the the office um, the office soap opera, <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, the 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 fantasy world, punching numbers into cyberspace. Where do they go? What happens to them? Who sees them? Who cares? Um, and, and if I, if I left here, you know, how long would it take the, you know, if I pulled my finger out of this, uh, uh, puddle, how long would it take for their, for the hole to fill? Um, whereas here, you know, everything's depending on me. The cows are depending on me. The chickens are depending on me. Tomatoes are depending on me. The garden's depending on me, the, you know, uh, and and I'm needed and, and it's, it's sacred stuff and to be, you know, we all need to be affirmed. We want to be affirmed in our humanity. We want to be affirmed in our, in, in, in that what we're doing is meaningful and, and, and valuable. And, um, uh, you know, when that, when that, when that calf plops out and that cow looks at you, you know, and I mean, we had a calf yesterday that 
heifer first calf and 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 she got him all cleaned up and mothered him but she wouldn't let him nurse every time he tried to nurse you know she, she'd pull away so we had to get her in and i'm holding the calf and and uh the calf's been out you know born for i don't know what two three hours you know and um and finally i get him up there she's got plenty of milk stick his mouth up over the over the teat you know and i give a little squirt and get some milk in his mouth and boy i'll tell you what when he latches on and you can just feel his whole body quiver and shake you know with with life and you and you sit there and you realize i just got to see life take hold that's it doesn't get any better than that yeah, Joel, I mean, it's, you know, and, and I've talked to many, many ranchers and, you know, and, and I, and I see this, this sort of belief from people that, you know, want to end ag animal agriculture that, that people are in there, you know, being cruel to animals. And we just, I, I just don't see that. I mean, I, I can see that, No. you know, the, the exact opposite. I think people that go into this truly love animals and that's why they do it. Absolutely. For the most part. You know, it's kind of, it, I like the, I like the uh, womb of ab abundance brought to us by the letter M today. I think that's a great way to. Uh, <laughs> Joel, Joel, can you can you tell us uh, where people can find you, where they can find more about your farm? I think is it called Polyface Farms, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, uh, po Polyface Farms. Yeah, well, we have yeah we have a website that has uh, tons of information on it. Um, so it's Polyface, all one word, P-O-L-Y-F-A-C-E, Polyface Farms. Uh, in fact, if you just start typing in P-O-L, by the time you get to P-O-L-Y, it'll probably pop up. And um, and that's our website, and you can see where I'll be speaking. Uh, you can see the the different things that we do. I mean, it's just it's a there's a, there's a lot of stuff there. So go go and park for 30 minutes and enjoy. There's YouTube YouTube links and and different things as well. Wonderful. I, just just out of my own personal curiosity, I'm just curious about your beef. So tell me, <laughs> how how old are the cows when you when you when you guys slaughter the cows, and and, and what's the, what's the story on the beef there as far as uh, you know, how that turns out and how we get some and stuff like that. <laughs> well, they're normally uh, anywhere from 28 to 32 months. Um, so they're a little bit older, but that makes them richer in taste and lets them get uh, fully finished. And um, I don't know what else you want to know. We, you know, we write, uh, we are just, at the point where we're beginning to do a little bit of shit it's just you know done local but um uh we are uh, next month we'll be starting looks like um a straight shot up to new york city from here new york's five hours away so we're going to be um going there we make a uh, we make a a pork, uh, pork stick, 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 a great snack. Uh, you can, we can put those Jiffy mailers and send them pretty cheap. And, uh, that works out very well because they're shelf stable and you don't have to freeze them. We're getting ready. We're just close to being able to have a, a beef stick as well. And, um, you know, this is, this is a great way to get great nutrition, um, you know, without the carbohydrate, um, a, a good protein nutrition and it's very uh, shippable and deliverable. So that's kind of where we're headed. And, 
Yeah, lots of lots of uh, transitions. That sounds like good stuff. I'll have to get I'll have to get your your info to put in our animal based nutrition network so we have people that can get a hold of particularly people that live out in your area that want to get some stuff locally or, or even. Oh, absolutely, yes, we'll, yes, for sure. We'll, for sure. we'll track you down for that stuff. So wonderful. So okay. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been a truly enlightening and wonderful and positive experience. You know, to hear because we hear so much negativity coming out about you know how animals are destroying the planet and killing the world, and I think right. that's just a complete misunderstanding of what 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 we do and and you know i think if the if the will is there i think we have the way and i think it's just a matter of change, mm -hmm. learn, getting yep. the message out so thank you so much for for doing what you do that's right well thank you thanks for having me on and it's been a been a delight thank you all yeah thanks a bunch for coming on jill all right till next time okay we're bye looking bye. forward to it now for a word from our sponsors all right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage-breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now, back to the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.